Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Coming to you for the first time from the Aloha State on a little family vacation this week and am really trying to... Uh, divorce myself after this podcast from all NFL thoughts for a few days. I will be back. Uh, the column will be back on Monday. I'll be back home this weekend, but uh, we're on a little bit of a fam vacation. But from Hawaii, uh, I'm going to be joined by Miles Simmons, my partner at NBC Sports, and we're going to dissect for the first time uh, this the, the first 10 picks of the NFL draft. We're going to do that first. Then we're going to get into a conversation I had. This is audio only. It will not be on the video portion of the podcast, but audio only a conversation I had at the league meetings with Brian Dable, the uh, NFL coach of the year by the Associated Press, uh, the coach, obviously, of the New York Giants. Then... On the back end of the podcast, we're going to talk about a few news notes of the week. Number one, uh, Mike Florio's story on Tuesday of this week that the Patriots have been shopping Mac Jones. The quarterback leads to many interesting discussions. We will also talk about the Jim Trotter story. You know, it's interesting. Jim Trotter, a former Sports Illustrated peer of mine, uh, worked for NFL Network uh, and got released, basically. And so I talked to Trotter and wrote about him in my column this week. The unfortunate thing is, you know, I probably should have put it higher in my column because far and away, that was the most responded to piece of my column this past week. So we'll talk about Trotter and what his story portends. We'll also give you a little bit more of the meaning of the Thursday night flex argument that is now going on between the league and eight of its owners, and also where the Lamar Jackson story goes next, because now it's obvious that there is not a team that is stepping up to go uh, do a contract with Lamar Jackson. So... Let's get going on this part of the podcast. In my column this week, I wrote about how uh, here's what I hear about the top four picks in the draft. And I've heard other things, 
uh, high in the draft. So I thought we would just go one through 10 here in the first part of the podcast, um, Miles Simmons and I, and then we will essentially try to project and give you our best information that we know now about what every team is thinking. And I have to tell you, from having been at the league meetings last week, and I'm sure Miles will feel uh, some of what I'm about to say, it's getting harder and harder to find out real information. You put out stuff, you hope that it's as accurate as possible, and you just put conditions on almost everything because a lot of times you don't know if you're getting the real or if you're getting the phony. Anyway, Miles Simmons, how are you? By the way, Miles, this might be the only time in the history of our podcast where I am actually west of you. Because usually I'm doing this from Brooklyn, you're in L.A. And so this we're a little bit different this week, but how's it going? Uh, yes, yeah, you definitely are. Aloha, Peter. Isn't that what they say out there? I, I hope that things are going well in Hawaii. And you absolutely should unplug from whatever this stuff is for the next few days after we're done with this podcast. But, you know, it's funny. I mean, we're getting into the silly season, quote unquote, of, of yeah. draft talk, right? And, and I think you're right where it's like you don't necessarily know what's real, what's not. And in some ways, you have to kind of put your filter on of, okay, why am I learning this information from this person? What does this really mean in the larger context of what is the NFL news and what is the NFL news cycle? Why am I learning this right now? And so that's how you can kind of figure out, well, is it real? Is it not? I don't know. Is it this? Is it that? Which is why I just like to, when we get to the first round of the draft, because then we actually have real things to talk about. Yes. But- By that same token, I've evolved my stance on mock drafts in in the last couple of years because I always used to really hate them. I'm like, nobody really knows what they're talking about. And how are we going to say that this is right or this is wrong? And it's if you really look at it as we're going through different scenarios with what could happen, then that's how I like to think of these mocks now. And that's kind of why I like what we're going to do, because it's not necessarily like we're trying to mock out the first 10 picks, but it's okay, here's what could happen. Here's what might make sense. And then based off of that, what would happen next? Right? And I think if we approach it that way, it's less of the silly season and more of, well, let's just talk through some scenarios here. So exactly. that's where my head's at. Yeah, and I think that that's really smart because look, I, I was very careful in talking about the first four picks in the draft on Monday. Yeah, I was very careful in saying, in putting conditions on everything because- yeah. You know, and and why don't we just start with the Carolina Panthers at number one? And one of the things, one of the points I made in my column is that there are definitely people inside that organization who love Bryce Young. Mm -hmm. I mean, love Bryce Young. And so as I look at this right now, I think that before when I talked about uh, head coach Frank Reich and his love of large, tall quarterbacks, I have basically talked myself into C.J. Stroud for the first pick. But I was told by a couple of people, not so fast. Hmm. You know, and I think that is where I where I sit right now. Josh McCown, the quarterback coach uh, of the Carolina Panthers, before he took this job, uh, he had told someone else in the league that he absolutely loves Bryce Young. And you don't see size when you see Bryce Young. 
So that's one thing that kind of started to make me think a little bit. Uh, I hear there are others inside the Panthers who are high on him. So look, it's almost certainly going to be one of those two guys, Bryce Young of Alabama, C.J. Stroud of Ohio State. And I think at least for the next couple of weeks, it's going to be hard to divine which one it is. Well, I would think that they have a decent idea from the top brass, you know, whether it was Frank Reich um, and, and Fitterer, the GM, and also Tepper, the owner, they have a good idea of what it is that they want to do, but they are allowing themselves the time to really be convinced of it. And, and I say that because of what I experienced when I was working for the Los Angeles Rams in 2016. You know, you don't trade up to number one for a quarterback, right, without knowing who you really like at that spot. And while you can be moved off of that position after you get more information, it's almost that you are trying to really confirm and go make sure you're ticking every box, right? Dotting every I, crossing every T to make sure that you know exactly what you want to do there. So whether it's Bryce Young, whether it's CJ Stroud, there are reasons to love both of those guys. I mean, there's a reason why one of them is going to be the number one overall pick. And then the second one is going to be number two overall, right? You look at what they've done in college, their body of work. It is very strong, both of them. Um, and so because of that, you really can talk yourself into one or the other. But I think that because Carolina made that aggressive move, they have a good idea of what they're going to do because I just don't think that you make that move without having a good idea of what you're going to do. So let's go to number two because we can sort of go around for a long time about the Panthers. The fact is, I don't know who they're picking. They're <laughs> going to pick one of those two quarterbacks. So let's move on. So I heard two very interesting things last week. One is that Nick Casario, the head coach, the general manager of the Houston Texans, picking second in this draft, does not feel like he is forced into taking a quarterback number two. And the reason is he's got two number one picks next year, and he's got the 13th pick this year, as well as this second pick. So as this person... Pick. Is this, this person? Sorry. Yes, yes, that's right. So yeah, let's let's just clarify that. Yeah. He's got the second pick and the thirteenth pick this year. Next year, he has his own pick and another number one from the Cleveland Browns. Yep. So, so with all of that draft capital, I was told that Nick Casario does not feel forced. If there's a quarterback at number two who he doesn't love, he doesn't feel forced to have to pick a quarterback. And he could then take the safest player by far in this draft, Willie Anderson, the edge rusher from Alabama. As somebody said to me last year, you know how it's sort of late in the process, everybody was finding holes in Aiden, Aiden Hutchinson. And, well, you know, he's not the perfect edge guy. He's not this. He's not that. Well, all Aiden Hutchinson did is uh, basically was, you know, finished second in defensive rookie of the year to, uh, you know, obviously to Sauce Gardner and have a great year. Not a good year, a great year, yeah. including all the sacks and three interceptions. So 
I think that that's the comparison I'm hearing now. He's going to have Willie Anderson might not be Bruce Smith, but he's going to have excellent impact for an edge guy. So, and obviously Houston's huge defensive needs is an edge rusher. So everybody, when I wrote this in my column, I got this, oh, you're out of your mind. You're doing the Texans bidding. You're doing this. But so another uh, person with knowledge of people inside the Texans also told me the other day that they would really like uh, to have Bryce Young as their pick. They're hoping that it's C.J. Stroud at number one and Bryce Young at number two because uh, right now they are a little hesitant with C.J. Stroud because he's represented by David Mulugeta, who was the agent for Deshaun Watson. And that, to me, is a little bit of a straw man argument. I don't necessarily buy it, but it's an interesting argument to say that if Bryce Young goes one and C.J. Stroud is sitting there, could they have some second and third thoughts because they had such a bad experience with David Mulugeta? Now, to me, it's absolutely different because a veteran contract, you know, with Deshaun Watson is a lot different from a slotted rookie contract. So I don't really buy that they wouldn't take him because they have a bad taste in their mouth for the agent of CJ Stroud. What is, how does that hit you? Uh, if that's the way you're constructing your team, you know, because you don't necessarily want to deal with an agent, I think that that's a bad way of team construction. So, I mean, you know, and I, I think you're right. I mean, look, it's a slotted contract for the number two overall pick. And if you have to pay your quarterback in three years, then I think that that's a good problem to have in, you know, right. one of those things that uh, NFL people love to say. So, I don't think that that would necessarily be good business. And I don't necessarily know if I buy that either. I, I do buy that they would rather maybe have Bryce Young than CJ Stroud, uh, you know, because of just a, a lot of different factors. Um, and, and the fact that he played for Alabama and all that, maybe. But I think that they're, I think that it would behoove the Texans, I think, to pick either one of CJ Stroud or Bryce Young based on who falls. Because if you can get Will Anderson, fantastic. And it's not that, you know, you don't want somebody who's going to have a really, really good career, right? Or set themselves right. up to be a great edge rusher for you for years and years and years to come. But if you don't have the franchise quarterback that can make you a competitor year in and year out in the AFC South, then what does that really matter? So yeah. I, 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 that's where my mind would go there with the number two pick. So I think one of the interesting things is, that is happening with this, with, with all of this, quite honestly, is that you have a mystery at number one and you have a bit of a mystery at number two. The easiest thing to do is to say that Houston's going to take whoever Carolina doesn't take. Yes. And Miles, I 80% believe that. So that's where I stand right now that quarterbacks will go one to CJ Stroud and Bryce Young in some order. And then we get to number three with the Arizona Cardinals. Mm -hmm. So as I was told at the league meetings, you no, know, this was by somebody who's a longtime drafter 
and a longtime GM, he said, listen, the Arizona Cardinals, they got a rookie GM in Monty Austin Ford. And this person, when we were talking about it, said that they probably have the worst overall talent on the roster of any team in football. So when you look at the Arizona Cardinals, you basically say, if there are quarterbacks going one and two, well, they can do one of two things. They can take a ransom for uh, Will Anderson, the Alabama edge rusher, or Mm -hmm. they could take Will Anderson if there isn't a real ransom out there. But I'll tell you what, I would not do anything. I wouldn't do anything until uh, pick number three of this draft. And I'll tell you why. Because if my 20% thought is correct, and if the Houston Texans do not take a quarterback at number two, then either Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud is going to be there at number three. And it's going to be, I think, open season for that pick. So Monty Ford has to be calm, cool, not take any offer, in my opinion, until the draft happens and until he's sitting there with the first pick in his general manager career with 10 minutes on the clock and the calls flowing in. But let me just make one other point, Miles. This general manager who talked to me about this said, listen, you do your groundwork. You don't just start this at the 10 minute mark uh, with your pick. Every team that you think might want a uh, a quarterback, every team that you think might want a quarterback, you've got to call them and you have to basically give tell them, hey, look, if one of them is here, what are you willing to give? Mm-hmm. And so you have a little score sheet right then. You say, okay, Tampa's willing to give this, Washington this, Tennessee this, Vegas this. And then you figure out how far down you would go and what you could get in return. And if I'm Monty Austin for it, I am not taking anything less than that team's first this year and a first next year, even if it's just trading down with the Raiders at seven. Or, I mean, it could also be the Colts too, right? And if that happens, then what happens if somebody's like, okay, well, CJ Stroud, Bryce Young are now gone, but man, do I want Anthony Richardson? And if I don't get this right now, you know, then I'm not going to be able to do it. I mean, I think that there's all kinds of things that can then happen. The, The Cardinals are in a decent spot in terms of needing to acquire talent, but you already have the quarterback who you believe can be the franchise guy for your future. And and when you don't have to uh, go up for that guy, or you don't have to figure out who that guy is, it makes things a lot easier. The other thing that is probably a reality for the Cardinals this season, because you don't know when Kyler Murray is going to be healthy, if he's going to be healthy to play at all in 2023 you're probably not going to have that great of a season. And, you know, I don't think anybody wants to say that or hear that in Arizona right now, but look, that's what they're staring yes, at they right do. now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, it's going to be, it's going to be a lost year. That's just what it is. You're not going to be very good. So you're probably going to be picking up pretty high in the draft next year too. So if you think of it that way and you say, all right, we can get something 
for this number three overall pick. Maybe we end up with two really good first round picks next year and we still don't have to pick a quarterback. That's not a bad place to be to set yourself up for 2024, 2025, right? So it's not fun necessarily to think about it that way when you're talking about the 2023 Cardinals who are still going to go out and try to win football games. But I think that's the reality of where the Cardinals are right now. If I'm Monty Austin Ford, and you know, I really appreciate you saving me on that one, Miles, and talking me through the Indianapolis uh, logic at number four. We're going to get to the Colts in a second. But if I'm Monty Austin Ford and the Colts say, well, you know, we're just moving one spot, we'll give you our two this year, 30, uh, 35th pick overall. Mm-hmm. And if I'm Monty Austin Ford, I'm saying, absolutely not. Yeah. I said, I, I can go down to seven. Yes. Well, I miss Will Anderson probably, but I could go down to number seven for a one next year and a three this year. Yep. Well, uh, or whatever, you know, pick a thing. I want your one next year. That is how this trade is going to get done. And then that's going to be a hard one for, for Chris Ballard and for Jim Ursay and Shane Steichen. Do we want to give up our one next year? And I think if you get the quarterback you want, you have to use that as sort of a sunk cost mm-hmm. as, as you know, you don't want to do that, but you're willing to do it to get the quarterback that you want. So let's just say right now that, that you're, you're Monty Austin Ford, you're the Arizona Cardinals. You're waiting until draft day. You're doing your diligence beforehand and talking about the value of this pick. And you have your heart set on a one or let's just say for the sake of argument that the Colts say, we'll give you two twos uh, to move up this one spot. I might be okay with that because that means that in essence, you're going to have three picks in the first two rounds of the next two drafts. And that's also a good place to be. But anyway, there we are with, with Arizona. So with Indianapolis, as I wrote on Monday, Uh, The Colts will work out all four of the top quarterbacks this week, uh, finishing this weekend with with Anthony Richardson in Gainesville, Florida. And my understanding of this is the reason that the Colts did not have a great presence at all these pro days is because the only thing that they value, and I applaud Chris Ballard for this, because pro days you can watch on TV – And unless you're going to dinner or going to do this with them or that with them, I think Chris Ballard did the right thing in this case Mm -hmm. by just basically telling all four top guys, listen, I want to have some quality time with you a couple of weeks after your pro day. So let's set up a workout. We'll have a dinner. We'll put you on the board. We'll do all of that stuff without being hurried because you know you have an appointment with another team right after us. So – Good for the Colts. And as someone uh, told me last week after I heard about this, look, it's almost useless to project what the Colts will do until they meet with all these quarterbacks. And when they do meet with all these quarterbacks, probably starting this weekend, I think we'll have a better idea because either, either the Colts are going to try aggressively to move up if they think one of their guys is going to be their Stroud or Young, or they may want to move to number three to make sure they get Anthony Richardson and don't get leapfrogged for Anthony Richardson. So, and, and, and as of right now, I don't know, Miles, I can't see Will Levis. I just can't see Will Levis 
breaking into the top three. I might be wrong. We'll see if I'm wrong. But to me, this is Stroud Young or Young Stroud and then Richardson with Levis taking a bit of a tumble. I would agree with that, you know, based on some of the things that I heard last week and sort of some of the things that I've observed um, from Will Levis. And it's not, I'm trying to like knock Will Levis's character, but I think it's just the performance and some of the traits uh, and the skill set that he's shown is not necessarily something that you would want to take at the top because of the consistency or lack thereof, I guess I should say, yeah. at that position. So I think you're right about Richardson. And now Richardson is a lot of projection as well, but especially if you have somebody like a Gardner Minshew who can start for you, you know, can be at least a quality quarterback. He's familiar with uh, Shane Steichen, so he knows the kind of offense that he's going to call. Steichen's called plays for him before as well, so it's not like that's going to be some kind of horrible thing there where you're going to have an incompetent quarterback. I don't think that that's the situation that they're in. Um, so that the Colts, they can take a quarterback if they want, or maybe they don't take a quarterback because the price is too high to get him or they, the quarterback that falls is not necessarily the quarterback that they want. So they've at least yeah. given themselves that kind of insurance by having Gardner Minshew already on the roster. Yeah, I think they're not going to be dissuaded from taking a quarterback because of anybody they have in-house. The sure, Colts yeah. obviously <laughs> have had five different starters in the last five years. They want to find a solution here, and yes. they did not – acquire Gardner Minshew to be that solution. They're looking for uh, a long-term solution. And I think whether it be him, Zach Kiefer, the athletic wrote it that, and I think it makes a lot of sense uh, that Hendon Hooker could enter their thought process either late in round one by trading back into the round from high in the second round or uh, by waiting until round two. And then Hooker's an interesting prospect. He yeah. might have been, he certainly would have been right there with Will Levis right now as a mid-first round uh, prospect. But he obviously tore his ACL. He claims he'll be ready by this summer to play fully, but that's a pipe dream. You know, you don't uh, play the position of quarterback and an elusive quarterback nonetheless, never mind. Uh and think that you can be ready seven months after a uh, ACL surgery. But anyway, um, let's let's move on to the Seattle Seahawks. I think the Seahawks. I talked to Pete Carroll at the scouting combo or at the uh, league meetings, and one of the things he said was, "He goes look because somebody asked him. I was in his little scrum. Somebody said, how will Geno Smith respond to taking a quarterback if you take him number five? And he said, Gino will be great. He'll help him every day. And I think he's right about that. Gino Smith has been in this situation almost his entire career. And just because now somebody says, for the first time in a decade, you're the man, you're our guy, uh, that doesn't mean he's not going to help a guy who comes in. So obviously the Seahawks have gone to all four pro days. They're right there in an interesting spot in the draft you almost certainly think that there will be three quarterbacks picked before the fifth pick in the draft. So would Seattle trade up to Arizona? Would Arizona want to trade with Seattle and give them a quarterback in the future? Or would, would Monty Austin Ford of the, of the Cardinals take a little bit less from somebody else, uh, even because he doesn't want to give Seattle its quarterback of the future who could be 
you for the next 10 years. So that's it's going to be an interesting spot. But this, the Seattle spot at number five, this is where I first will consider and first will think about Jalen Carter. Mm-hmm. Jalen Carter, as everybody knows, he's a defensive tackle from Georgia. He's had a lot of problems. Um, he was involved and found culpable to a, a lesser uh, crime in the uh, drag racing alleged drag racing a situation that resulted in the deaths of two uh, members, one player and one member of the staff at the University of Georgia. He uh, basically stayed at the scene and and all that. And so there's there's that. And there's the fact that uh, there are a lot of questions. Todd McShay of ESPN started asking these questions late in the season about his character and about his willingness to practice and things like that. So there are a lot of questions right now about Jalen Carter. Drew Rosenhaus, his agent, has told Adam Schefter, hey, listen, uh, Jalen Carter is only going to visit or spend significant time with the player, with the teams in the top 10 of the draft. We're not going way down. We don't, we, he's not going out of the top 10. So we'll see if he's right. But this is the first place where – Pete Carroll's never afraid of taking on uh, people who others think have character issues. No doubt. And, and I would point to Frank Clark as one really good example yeah. of that, who they drafted you know, several years ago, but it's still John Schneider. It's still Pete Carroll. So I, I would agree with you, Peter. I think that's kind of the first place where you're saying to yourself, all right, well, if Jalen Carter's on the board, he would make a lot of sense for the Seattle Seahawks in that situation. And he would definitely improve that defense right away and be a staunch guy in the middle of that defense ready to perform. So that would make sense to me as well as looking at a quarterback. But I think that they're going to have to weigh whether or not the cost of drafting that quarterback and then you don't get that really key defensive player is worth it because you do have a guy in Geno Smith who performed so well last year, but that doesn't necessarily take them out of that conversation. So that's why number five pick it's sort of like it. Number three, where a lot of things will hinge on that number five will, will hinge a lot of things will hinge as well on the number five overall pick because of the different ways that Seattle can go. So to me, Seattle is, maybe a quarterback, maybe Jalen Carter. And I think they're in decent shape at corner, but it wouldn't shock me because teams are playing three corners, 70% or more of the downs this year. Mm-hmm. And they could also go corner here. And obviously there are good corners in this draft. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World? Like, hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. 
Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I want to go to Detroit at number six and just give you a feeling from listening to Dan Campbell at the league meetings. I just got the feeling that the Lions, even though Jalen Carter would fit them scheme-wise, I just got the feeling that the Lions are not going Jalen Carter. The same way I got the feeling that the Raiders at number seven are not going Jalen Carter. Mm. And so at this point, I, I, and I want to clarify one thing. Let's, let's, let's talk just for a second about what exactly Jalen Carter was, uh, you know, pled to in this sure. case. He, he basically entered a no contest. So there was no, no trial, but he entered a no contest and, and accepted a, uh, a sentence of 12 months of probation. He paid a $1,000 fine and he's got to perform 80 hours of community service uh, for what the police in Athens, Georgia, uh, had charged him with in connection uh, with the double fatality crash um, that obviously killed two members of the Georgia program. So essentially, this case is done. Jalen Carter just has to do what he's supposed to do now in, in connection with this. He'll have to see a probation officer wherever he ends up living. And so there's all that. But I just got the feeling in Detroit that, you know, that they don't want to get involved in something that might not be totally clean. And the way I look at uh, the Lions, which I, I think the Lions have, the Lions are in a fantastic spot in this draft. And I say they're in this fantastic spot for a simple reason. If you look at the Detroit Lions and sort of look at what happened to them, here they are right now. They are picking sixth and 18th in the first round. They have five picks in the first three rounds. And to me, with five picks on the first two days of this draft, probably not picking a, a, uh, a quarterback because they, at least for now, believe in Jared Goff who is at a reasonable rate of pay this year. I don't know about you, uh, Miles, but, man, the arrow is really pointing up for the Detroit Lions. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that they have a guy who really, really knows what he's doing in GM Brad Holmes in terms of picking yep. those uh, or making those selections, right, in the draft. I mean, I've, I've spent time in draft rooms with Brad Holmes, you know, in Los Angeles here. So I I understand what kind of mind he has and what kind of, of things that they're going to be doing there. So I think that they are in a really, really good spot where you could say, all right, we don't necessarily anticipate picking this high again in the top 10. If there's a quarterback that we really believe in, say, if an Anthony Richardson falls to number six overall, and we have Jared Goff at that reasonable rate of pay, so we don't have to play a Richardson right away. You know, you could maybe put him on the Patrick Mahomes method or the Jordan Love method and sit him for a year, a couple of years, if Jared Goff can still kind of get you to where it is that you think you want to go. And then if it right. so happens that Richardson, you know, shows what shows enough progress in practice, then maybe you move on to him, right? So that's a unique opportunity that they've got, but they don't have to do that. 
right? They can still build upon their defense, which started ascending a little more and more toward the end of the season. It definitely did, but there are still pieces that they can add to it. So whether it's a corner, whether it is a defensive tackle or an edge rusher, they've got a lot of options. And depending on the way things fall in the top five, Detroit should be in a really good spot to land a high quality player. And then they also pick again in the teens. And I think what, uh, excuse me, what Brad Holmes did last year in selecting Williams, a wide receiver who, yeah, you know, he's probably not going to play most of the season, but you get his feet wet toward the end of the year. And now heading into year two, he should be an explosive big part of that offense. It's good team construction, I think. So I, I, I like what Detroit has on the board for him right now. So to me, I think it's, I was kind of surprised and, and again, look, I know that a lot of people have Devin Witherspoon of Illinois uh, as the top corner in the draft. And uh, I don't I have no idea right now today whether he's going to be Detroit's pick. The thing that surprises me a little bit, just a little bit, is, you know, he weighs 181 pounds. And in the Detroit, uh, Daniel Jeremiah gave him to the Lions in his latest mock draft. Mm hmm. And the reason why I'm just a little bit skeptical of that is that they want their corners to be able to be physical tacklers. And I don't know if I'm taking a 180 pound corner, uh, you know, with the sixth pick in the draft. Yeah. Uh, but again, look, we'll see. Every, everything is so early. But anyway, let's go to the Raiders at number seven. Uh, we talked about how they're, uh, I think that they really, my opinion, is they really would like to move up to get in position to take a quarterback. I think that Josh McDaniels is almost uh, his, his instinct is to be very, very conservative on grading these quarterbacks. And so I won't be surprised. I don't think they're going to over trade. Okay. I don't think they're going to over trade to move up to get a quarterback. And I think it's probably, more likely that they're going to sit, um, you know, where they are and do one of two things, take the best available offensive lineman or uh, uh, take the best available uh, defensive front player uh, to sort of be an addition and really help out Max Crosby uh, on that front. But again, I do think they're actively investigating trades uh, higher in the draft. And they definitely had interest in moving up to number one. Uh, they just didn't give nearly as good an offer as Carolina did to go from nine to one. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. I think, you know, listening to Josh McDaniels, Dave Ziegler at um, both the combine and then at, uh, at the league meeting last week, you know, it just seems like, they would like to get a quarterback in place that they can all grow together with, you know, and have a guy that can be the guy there for years and years to come. And I understand that, but what they've done is in signing Jimmy Garoppolo. Now they've just brought in Brian Hoyer too. They've got guys who understand what the Josh McDaniel system is and can be viable quarterbacks for you. So you're not pinned into picking a guy just because you have that pick and somebody might be there if you don't necessarily want that quarterback. So I think they've set themselves up all right in that endeavor, but it would not shock me if the Raiders moved up in order to get a quarterback. They're probably going to have to in order to get a guy they really, really like. Um, but 
I think that conservative nature that they, that Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler have been around kind of their entire football careers with new England. And yeah, I know McDaniels has spent a little bit of time other places, but that, that, that kind of conservative mindset, I think is still going to kind of permeate their strategy and what it is that they'll do when it comes to trying to find that guy, because you, you can't just entirely, you know, mortgage your future in order to get a quarterback you don't necessarily believe can be that guy for years and years to come, if that makes sense. Then we get to Atlanta at number eight. Uh, we'll just take the last three fairly quickly. We get to Atlanta at number eight. And what I think is interesting about Atlanta's pick, I think the absolutely perfect player for Atlanta right here, um, it, would, it would give them basically the best young cornerback tandem uh, in their division far by far, I, I think, uh, is to take Christian Gonzalez. Now, for those who don't know Christian Gonzalez, played at Oregon, uh, 6'1", about 200, 205 probably when he gets in the uh, his NFL strength program. So let's say 6'1", 200. But he's a 4'3", guy, did very, very well in all of the uh, – all of the drills that show uh, speed and quickness at the combine. So I think if it lay, I think Atlanta would run this pick to the board or to the, uh, uh, to the stage in Kansas city. When, when this pick is up, this would be a great pick for the Atlanta Falcons. Yeah. And look, they're going in with Desmond Ritter as their quarterback. We understand that. And, you know, I understand the reasoning um, for it. So they've got a necess- they have to build their defense that much more. And, and if you're able to get somebody like that, I, I would agree. I think they'd be very happy with it. So let's go to number nine, the Chicago Bears. Um, I think most people believe, particularly if every tackle is left on the board, that they just sit here and take either Peter Skaronsky, uh, the the versatile guard tackle from Northwestern, or they take the uh, Paris Johnson, the left tackle from Ohio State. I kind of think they would favor Paris Johnson in this particular case because, you know, look, um, the, the Chicago Bears are a very, very traditional drafting team right now with Ryan Poles, who having studied under Scott Pioli in Kansas City and uh, and and then Andy Reid, Brett Veach, and then obviously uh, Matt Eberflus, the head coach. Uh, they're very, they're, they're tradition guys. How they feel about short arm tackles, probably not great. Hmm. I think that's a little bit... Uh, a little bit too much in terms of talking about a guy who's got short arms, but I just think it's probably likely here at number nine that they take a need position that they weren't able to address in free agency. I think that makes perfectly good sense. Like you have to be able to build around Justin Fields as much as possible. They went out, they got him a top target at receiver in DJ Moore. So, you know, whether it's keeping an OL from the Chicagoland area in Chicago or picking another guy from the big 10, I I think that would make a lot of sense. Number 10. uh, I think this is a fascinating pick because Howie Roseman 
is has shown himself <laughs> in recent years to be a very uh, a very iconoclastic general manager. He is not afraid to do anything, even if it doesn't seem really smart in today's football. And I'm not sure this doesn't seem smart, but man, Bijan Robinson would be an incredible pick for the Philadelphia Eagles at number 10. And and look, who knows? Can you imagine if you're Howie Roseman and you have Bijan Robinson or Jalen Carter to choose from right here? And look, I don't think having picked Jordan Davis high last year, uh, who essentially is a Jalen Carter play-alike guy, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I don't think that it really matches their need. But I'm telling you, Howie Roseman, if they love Jalen Carter and think Jalen Carter can be managed, that won't shock me here. But yeah. and and look, he could he can go in a lot of different directions here. Uh, but to me, I think Bijan Robinson in the hands of Nick Sirianni uh, it would be a tremendous weapon. Players have Todd McShay uh, and and several have said that he's a he, he might even turn out to be a better pro than Saquon Barkley. And I think his versatility, especially to a team that loves to throw to its back mm-hmm. uh, in Philadelphia, I think would be great. It's interesting because you you don't often see a team go to the Super Bowl and have a top 10 pick. And so that's where the Eagles are. And it's not like they had a roster full of holes. Now they've lost some guys in free agency. So, I mean, I could certainly see them trying to restock and reload at D-line, especially given the way that they've rotated guys in and out. And we saw how effective that was. You know, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, those guys aren't going to play forever. So it would make sense if they would address that or then they can address offense, which is a position of strength, you know, where you're talking about their running game and get even better at that. I I, I could see the Eagles going in a lot of different ways. All right, Miles, we finished the first half of the pod. We've gone through one through 10 of the draft. And now for audio only, we're going to go to Brian Dable, the head coach of the New York Giants. For those not on audio, uh, you obviously will go to the second part of our draft after a short, our second part of our pod after this short uh, break. And now Brian Dable, the head coach of the New York Giants. Happy to be joined now by the coach of the New York Giants, Brian Dable. We're recording this at the NFL meetings in Phoenix. And Brian, when I thought that we were going to be talking, I said, what do I want to talk to Brian Dable about? And there are a lot of things to talk to you about, but I don't think that many people know what your back, how interesting your background is. And so I want to go into your background right now and just ask you little things and then we'll get to the giants, but so many interesting things. Let's start with the new England Patriots. Okay. You have five super bowl rings as a coach with the New England Patriots. So I'm going to ask you, what has been the overriding influence of Bill Belichick on your coaching career? Well, I'd say a lot. You know, I'd say before I even got to New England, I had the chance to be a defensive assistant uh, volunteer at William & Mary under Coach Laycock, who had a really successful career. 
and then become a graduate assistant on defense for two years with, with Coach Nick Saban at Michigan State. Um, that led me to have an opportunity to get to New England. And, you know, I started at a you know, fairly young age of, you know, doing anything I could do to try to help the team. Um, you know, didn't get paid a whole lot and started on defense for two years there and uh, took a lot of notes. And, you know, Coach Belichick is, is really good at everything. So, you know, from looking at players and scouting players to game management to leadership lessons, um, you know, there's so many things that you take notes on as a young coach. And, uh, never try to emulate somebody, but always try to learn from him. And, you know, he's one of the best to ever do it. Is it hard when you coach under Bill Belichick to make sure that you don't try to be Bill Belichick? Um, I don't know. I, I just, I've always tried to be myself no matter what. Um, look, Bill has been a head coach, you know, damn near longer than I've been alive. You know, I, I know it's not the exact amount of age, but. Um, he's as successful as they come, and uh, you know I'm just a you know a coach that was trying to make my way each and every year. Have had a lot of different experiences in my career, and you know just learned a ton from from coach. And um, you know try to be myself. You know whether it's at my job, at home, with my buddies. Um, that's just kind of how I was raised. So you were with Tom Brady basically for a decade, yeah. you know, and I wonder. Not only what did you take from Brady, but when your friends say, give us a good Brady story, what do you tell them? Well, I, I think everybody knows how competitive he is, but he's also a great person. Um, you know, we came into league the same year. I was a GA at Michigan State. He was a quarterback at Michigan. You know, I was, you know, taking down call sheets when he was playing against us, competitive games. Uh, you know, he's, he's just a good person. Um, you know, specific story. You know, I don't know if I have any great specific stories for you, other than he just—he's about as most competitive as a person I've ever been around. Two thousand eight, you find yourself—you're the quarterback coach of the New York Jets, and I would assume one day Mike Tannenbaum, the general manager of the Jets, came into your coaching staff and tells you, Eric Mangini, the head coach, and the other coaches, "Hey, listen." We're going after Brett Favre, okay? So what do you remember about that? And then what was it like for you, still a young coach at that time, to have Brett Favre walk into your meeting room? Yeah, Brett, working with Brett was great. I learned a lot from him. Obviously, he's played a, a ton of football. He had a great memory of, of all the games that he played, and he'd say, hey, go back to this year and try to find out this play in the second quarter. It was going opposite the scoreboard. The wind was blowing. You know, he had a great memory with all that. Um, you know, I tried to help him the best I could in terms of learning our terminology and trying to learn some of his old playbook and put it into to the system that we used. I remember the, you know, the first few practices he came out there, and, you know, he had his cadence that he had used for so many years, and, Nick Mangold is snapping it or not, and, and Nick's like, hey, Eric, I am not running a lap for that one. Um, you know, so, you know, we had to get used to his cadence and some of the things that he did, but uh, just another person that I'm grateful for in terms of learning the game from. So I want to fast forward a little bit now, almost a decade. You find yourself coaching under Nick Saban at Alabama. And your two quarterbacks are Jalen Hurts and Tua Valoa. So, and that's in 2017. Tell me about that year 
and what it was like to coach those guys. And did you think that they both were going to have the future that they, it's turned out that they've had? Yeah, I'd say tremendous individuals, tremendous players. I think the good thing for, for me that year was, again, I went back with Coach Saban. Um, I'll be in a different position, not a graduate assistant, but an offense corner. But I really got to take inventory of, of the college game and, and some of the things that they did in the college game that uh, maybe wasn't used a lot in the NFL. And also really be around young players. Um, you know, being in the league so long, you draft these players and then you just implement them right into your program. I think I had some, um, you know, I, I was able to kind of sit back and see what they went through in college and then think about it a little bit more when I went back to the league and, and, and players' rookie years and, and how I could help better and be a better coach. Um, so a lot of great memories there that, that one year. Um, those guys were, were great players for us. Um, again, learned a lot more from, from Nick. Uh, leadership-wise, and, um, you know, was very grateful for that opportunity. When you see Jalen Hurts and the last football game you coached was Jalen Hurts and the Eagles putting a hurting on you guys, are you remotely surprised? And what's your relationship like to this day? Yeah, I have a good relationship with Jalen. He's a, he's a heck of a player. He's even a better person. Um, you know, he's always done everything the right way, and, uh, you know, it wasn't just that one game. It was it was a few other games, too. So, um, you know, we got to continue to try to get better. I want to go and ask you one question about Buffalo and Josh Allen. When Josh Allen came to Buffalo, one of the knocks on him was he was not very accurate. And his first two years, he was okay, maybe around 58 59%. But in his third year, he went to 68, 69%. And I wonder, what do you remember about his improvement and what did you do to try to help him to improve? Yeah, first and foremost, I, you give credit to the player, you give credit to Josh. He's an extremely hard worker. He's very, very smart. And, you know, I think completion percentage always doesn't tell the story. Um, you know, why was the ball incomplete? How many throwaways were there? You know, how many were truly inaccurate passes? Uh, you know, the, the lead up to the draft, we did extensive work on him. We met with him a few times. Um, he, was, he was a tremendous person. We thought he was a tremendous athlete and, and really going to be a really good quarterback. And I think it takes time to develop uh, as a young player, particularly at that position. Um, you know, some guys do it right away as soon as they come in. But, but a lot of guys, it, it takes a little bit of time. And, you know, it's system fit and how you tweak things to try to let them do what they're, they're good at and also requires a good team around you. Um, so I think that, you know, each year, you know, Brandon did a great job of, of adding pieces, um, you know, Cole Beasley, John Brown, and then you got Steph in a, in a trade. And uh, he became, you know, I'd say very proficient in the offense that we were running. And, you know, it was an offense that was geared towards towards Josh. Um, and, you know, I can't say enough good things about him as a, as a person, but uh, as a player, I think he's so driven. Uh, the offseason work that he did with Jordan and, and how he came in. And, Jordan Palmer. Yeah, Jordan Palmer. And, you know, I think Sean had a good plan. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a collective effort. But, you know, ultimately, uh, to me, it falls on, it falls on Josh. But, um, you know, he was, he was a great young player to work with. 
I remember that year when he was doing so well and he was so significantly better at it. I remember talking to Tony Romo, who had spoken to him in the offseason and said, you know, drill, 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 mechanics, mechanics, and all that stuff. So it, it looks like he had a lot of help, but you were the guy who was with him every day. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I just, uh, you know, I think credit goes to the, to the player. And, um, you know, I had to try to have a small impact on him as, as best I could. And, um, you know, along with the help of the coaches of, of designing something that on offense that I thought would be, you know, we thought would be good for him. And, you know, he just he's just a, a player that's gotten better every year. He's been been in the NFL and uh, I was grateful to work with him. You have been asked this question 432 times, but only not by me. And I wonder, when you take the Giants' job, you understand what's happening. This is do or die for Daniel Jones with the New York Giants. He has to perform. He's got to rally. He's got to be more efficient. He can't turn it over the way he has. So when you think back on the last 12 months with Daniel Jones, what is important in getting him to a significant higher level? Yeah, well, I, I think his mindset is, is what you want to work with. He is uh, dedicated on improving every day since I've been with him. I know he was like that before I got there. Again, we, you know, we took small steps each day of trying to put together an offense that we would think would be good for, for him to run as the quarterback of our team. And, um, you know, he's smart. He's athletic. He's got a good arm. Um, you know, he's played, he's played some football. He's, he's been in a, a situation where there hasn't been a lot of consistency. Um, but, you know, we had, uh, I'd say we improved a lot this year. Um, and not just Daniel, but, but, but all of us, we, we all can improve even more. What I liked about your team is that you really had a lot of needs. And even when the season started, you had a lot of needs. But you never heard... Joe Shane, Brian Dable, Daniel Jones, basically anybody say, well, you know, it's a building year, it's this, it's that. And even though you had all of these issues, nobody ever said anything and you overcame him, overcame them. What, when you look back on it now, was the key to being better than everybody thought you would be? Um, you know, I just think that, you know, Joe does a great job. Um, you know, bringing in the right type of players, um, more importantly, the right type of people. Uh, we work well together, and, you know, we didn't have, again, every year is a new year, so you try to bring in people that have high integrity um, and build relationships with them in the offseason, which we had a, you know, a great turnout for the offseason program, and I think once you can start building those relationships, you build some loyalty with each other, and once you have that, you probably... Um, you know, trust is probably the most important thing for any organization. So if you have, you know, high integrity people that are loyal to one another, I think that leads to trusting one another, which is huge. That leads to respect, which ultimately leads to accountability. And, uh, you know, we're not in the business of making excuses. We understand um, this is a competitive league. So all we try to do is get better each day. Um, you know, I understand I wasn't going to be perfect. I was a 
It's my first year being a head coach, even though I've coached a long time in this league. Uh, try to surround myself with a, a good coaching staff. I know Joe did the same thing with the scouting department, uh, work hand in hand. And, um, you know, we had a lot of close games, you know, and, and we won some of those in the fourth quarter. But, you know, we still have a long way to go to, to improve our football team, um, you know, starting with me. Has there been a moment in the last 13 months where it hits you that you are the head coach of one of the flagship franchises of the National Football League, the the team that Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry were assistant coaches on, that Bill Parcells won two Super Bowls, that Lawrence Taylor and Phil Simms made so great. What is that like for you, and have you had a moment like that? Um, I, I'm humbled every day uh, by the opportunity that has been given to me. Um, you know, I've worked hard to try to get to this spot. It's an unbelievable organization with great ownership. Um, you've mentioned all those names from the past. You know, having you know a chance to meet Phil and sit down with Phil, or meet LT or Carl Banks or Hampton, OJ. I mean, there's just so many of them that I've had an opportunity to meet that we've brought back. Strahan. Um, talk I, I can't I can go on and on we've you know we we try to include those guys the best we can to because you know they laid a foundation uh, for our football team um, and I understand what happened 20 years ago doesn't uh, re- relate to winning um, next year but I think there's an appreciation for the people that have come before you uh, the ownership group and you know I'm very thankful that I have this position and I understand what comes with it. I'm just trying to do the best job I can, understanding that uh, make mistakes along the way and try to learn from them and rely around the good people that that I have a chance to work with, um, you know, to try to make an organization as good as we can. I'll end with this. As great as last year was in the eyes of so many Giants fans and people who love them, the end of the season, the 38-7 to loss to Philadelphia in the playoffs, had to be incredibly disappointing. Not just losing, but losing so decisively. Does that still stick with you? And how do you help your team get over that? Well, you know, I think all those games always stick with you. Um, when you get in the tournament um, and you lose, I think those are the games you remember more. I mean, I've had the opportunity to be around some good teams that won. Um, and I remember some of the games that we lost, uh, you know, the Indianapolis game when we played in Indianapolis and they came back or the games in Denver. Um, you know, those are when I was at New England, uh, this past game, the game at Houston, the Kansas City game. Those are the things that stick with you and, you know, drive you when you're competitive. Uh, but I'd say that, you know, 30 to, you know, 40 percent of your 90 man roster is going to be new most of the time. So, uh, you kind of put that in a rearview mirror. Um, you learn from the things that, you know, you need to learn from, and uh, it's a fresh season. So uh, anything that we did last year really isn't going to help us too much this year. And uh, bringing in new people, uh, that's always a challenge because uh, one team's never the same as the next team. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the talent. I'm talking about how you build the team, how you build the relationships, you know, how someone's going to react after a, a drop pass versus another person and, and trying to, you know, figure out the whys of a lot of these players. That's the challenge each year. So each year is a, a new challenge. Um, you know, I'm kind of moved on from last year. Um, didn't end the way we wanted to. I think we laid a foundation of, of how we want our culture to be. 
but again, the 2023 team is, is going to be dramatically different than, than last year's team. And, you know, my, my goal is to try to improve every day with those guys. And we got a lot of people to meet, you know, that we signed as free agents, the draft's coming up. So um, each year is its own new year. Brian Dable, congratulations on year one, and may it be the first year of very many. Well, thanks, Peter. I appreciate you. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Back on the podcast, and we're going to go quick hits in our last four topics of this podcast. We're going to start first with what Mike Florio reported at Pro Football Talk on Tuesday, and that is that Mac Jones was shopped by Bill Belichick uh, to several teams. And I think what the, including the Raiders with Josh McDaniels, but I, I think what's interesting about this is that you've ha- you haven't really heard a discouraging word from Belichick about Mac Jones, but you also haven't heard a full throated uh, endorsement of Mac Jones by Bill Belichick. So uh, I think this is going to be an interesting one to follow because clearly if the Patriots want to quash this story, they can quash it. If they want to give it life or they want to, uh, they just, they, they may just no comment it. Uh, and we'll see what happens. And by the time you've heard this, uh, there could well have been a reaction from the Patriots. But my first reaction was, hmm, if they somehow somewhere can find a landing spot for Mac Jones, how interesting would it be to have the Patriots then go try to make a deal with Lamar Jackson? Now, that's probably adding two and two and getting seven. But that's <laughs> the first thing I thought of because, honestly, Miles, if you look at the AFC East and you're Bill Belichick and you're looking at the next two years with Josh Allen, Tua Tonga-Valoa, and, and a great set of weapons and a very imaginative play caller. Uh, I think if you're looking at that and then you're looking at Aaron Rodgers coming in the division, you know that you're fourth by a lot with Mac Jones and you might not be fourth and you might have a real chance uh, with Lamar Jackson. So I'll be very interested to see this and to see if this actually uh, has some legs in the coming days. 
You know, Peter, this is another one of those situations that makes me think, hmm, why is this coming out? You know, who would want this to be out there that Matt Jones has been being shot? Because this is the first we've heard of it. And if, you know, he he was being shot to the Raiders, the Commanders, and there were a couple other teams that Florio named, then what does that mean, you know? And why would those teams not necessarily go after him, right? If he were being shopped to the Raiders, presumably that would have happened before they elected to go with Jimmy Garoppolo, who was on the open market. And who knows more about Mac Jones than Josh McDaniels? So there's a lot of stuff that is just kind of been bubbling to the surface throughout really the last 12 months when it comes to the Patriots and Mac Jones, I mean, you had the Frankenstein monster that was the offensive staff last year, which obviously didn't work. And he had, and Mac Jones had so much on field demonstrative frustration with that yeah. group that, yeah, it makes sense that both parties might be frustrated with one another because some of that stuff was just inherently not kept in house. So given all of that, I don't know where this is going to go. But I mean, when you have reporting that Mac Jones is being shopped already, what does that mean for draft night? I mean, that's something that we've got to pay attention to because Mac Jones may not be the Patriots quarterback after the first round of the draft. And if that happens, then you could see the Patriots going after Lamar Jackson after the draft because they wouldn't be giving up this year's first round pick. It would be next year in terms of 2024 and 2025 as a starting point, you know, given to, uh, to sign Lamar Jackson to an offer sheet. So it's, this is all very fascinating to me. I want to make one clarification about the Ravens right now. And that is, I don't think the Ravens have to have two ones for Lamar Jackson. Hmm. I think for instance, if the Indianapolis Colts were to sign Lamar Jackson, which I don't see them doing, um, then I think that Baltimore would take the fourth pick in the draft hmm. and that's it. So even though the rule says they are allowed to, uh, to take this, the two sides can negotiate exactly what the deal is. Yeah. And in my opinion, uh, I don't think it has to be two ones. Now, where the Patriots are going to pick, it might be two ones. But there are some picks, and you know, top ten picks that uh, I think Baltimore might just take one and and move on. But anyway, let's get to our second topic, Jim Trotter. Uh, for those who don't know Jim Trotter, he worked for Sports Illustrated for a long time. Then uh, he worked for ESPN, uh, and lately, since over for the last five years. He's worked for the NFL media group, doing some TV work, but mostly writing for NFL.com. As he told me over the weekend, uh, he was told last fall that his contract likely, there was no reason to think that his contract wouldn't be renewed. He had his little set to for the second straight year with Roger Goodell at the commissioner's press conference this year uh, and made a quote (laughs) that I think probably changed everything for Jim Trotter uh, because he said to Roger Goodell, um, James Baldwin once said, I can't believe what you say because I, I see what you do. do." And that basically was saying that the NFL has done nothing to promote and retain uh, top 
minority black talent at inside the NFL media group. Um, so there's that. And obviously he was told that he wouldn't be brought back last week. And I interviewed him on Saturday and he basically said that he was asked to sign an NDA in exchange for three months severance. And he said, no. So you can expect a lot more to come out with Trotter. Mike Florio has suggested that he might sue the NFL to get his job back plus damages. We'll see what happens. I told Jim that we would stay in touch. I'm friends with him. So obviously that clouds some of my thinking. I think my overall thought, Miles, is that because there are so few people, uh, so few journalists at NFL.com and in the NFL media group in general, because there are so few black journalists that, you know, it's a good idea to not only, uh, you know, retain them, but to listen to them. And I think this is one time where the NFL will wish it had really listened to Jim Trotter. The thing that bothered me the most in all the things that he said to me is that in the one year after he questioned the NFL at last year's Super Bowl press conference, uh, 15 months ago, 14 months ago, no one from the league ever contacted him to talk about it. I mean, clearly it's an issue. One of your biggest employees raised it as an issue publicly, and then you never once talked to him about it. To me, uh, I think the NFL uh, is really going to regret this. Yeah, it's certainly a clear misstep from the NFL um, when it comes not just dismissing Trotter, but dismissing what Trotter was saying in those press conferences and the issues that he raised. And I think the issues that he raised were very valid, you know, to not have anyone black on the news desk, to not have anyone black in the executives of the NFL media group. These things make sense to raise as issues when you're talking about a league that looks the way it does when it comes to players. So I applaud Jim Trotter um, for everything that he has said publicly so far. And you know what? This is going to be something that is obviously going to be worth following. I applaud you, Peter, for reaching out and interviewing him um, because I think that those quotes have, uh, that he said to you were very, very much needed in uh, the public discourse on um, this particular situation. And I, I don't know Jim Trotter personally, but you know I've admired him for a long time and that admiration has only grown in the last week or so. We'll see where this goes from here, but I believe that Trotter is going to have some very interesting stories to tell. And look, it's long been an open secret among people who work for NFL.com that you can go to the edge of the cliff, but you can't go over the cliff. And Jim Trotter went a step too far. And But in not taking the severance with the NDA, uh, it's clear that he's got some stories to tell and I look forward to hearing them. Um, Miles, the, the meaning of the Thursday night flex debate to me is very interesting and I'll explain why this is. We talked a little bit about it on the pod last week, mm -hmm. so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but in the intervening time, I've talked to a couple of owners about this and 
the prevailing thought among these two owners was basically that, listen, you need to understand this. The NFL very rarely will bring something up for a vote and advance it to the floor and try to get it passed if they don't think that they have the votes. Mm -hmm. So for the NFL to only have 22 solid yeses to give Thursday night football flex power. In other words, in four weeks late in the season, their last four weeks, weeks 14 through 17, to be able to say that in those four weeks they could flex a bad Thursday night matchup back to Sunday and then to pull a Sunday game and put it on Thursday. There are a lot of owners in the NFL, even some of the ones who voted yes, who were not really bothered by it. And I know two of the teams that voted for it are lesser franchises who don't think their their ox is going to get gored. They don't think their team would be flexed to a Thursday night game late in the season. So they didn't want to brawl with the league over it. But the teams that I reported who basically voted to to say we uh, we right now are are going against it, obviously led by John Mara of the New York Giants. It's he's been well publicized as a guy who uh, clearly has uh, hates this. He hates flexes in general. Because he thinks that if the league has signed a deal uh, that the with a, with a network, with a TV entity, with a streaming group, then the league and that entity ought to live with it. That's the way it goes. And but but anyway, he was joined uh, in his no vote. All right, by the Pittsburgh Steelers, the New York Jets, Chicago, Green Bay, and New Orleans. And there's two, two more who I couldn't find out, uh, but those were those were six of them. And then also the uh, Carolina and Denver abstaining uh, leads now to the NFL needing to convince two of those 10 teams to come over to their side. And conversely, it could be that one or two of the teams that voted uh, you know, for the measure might have some second thoughts. Mm-hmm. If John Mara can, uh, uh, you know, can push something through, maybe John Mara and and others, Mark Murphy and, and uh, Gail Benson, the McCaskey family, uh, Woody Johnson might be able to change some minds, but we'll see. My gut feeling is the NFL will get its way at the May meetings and it'll pass. But this opened up to me a little schism uh, among owners and the league office that think in essence, hey, you never gave ESPN for whatever it's been, 15 years, however long they had Monday Night Football, before this year was the first year they ever gave them the opportunity to flex games. Now in year two, you give it to Jeff Bezos at Amazon? Come on. And so I, I think there's some bruised feelings here uh, miles that aren't just going to go away i think that that makes sense and i I think that anytime you call a behavior abusive as as mara did last week um when it comes to potentially flexing thursday night games i i think that 
and I don't know how billionaires think because I'm not one, but if I were one of these billionaires that owns one of these teams, right, and I hear that and I voted yes, that would make me have second thoughts. That is one of those owners that you listen to and you think, well, he might really have a point there. And And we brought this up last week. Even though Roger Goodell said, yes, there are fans that are affected that would go to the games, but there are millions of fans affected around the nation, around the world that tune into these games. I think you need to pay attention to your paying customer, you know, and and people who do make a lot of plans that revolve around the timing and the day of what this game is. So I, I, I think that maybe there needs to be more compromise in terms of what the NFL could or could not flex into a Thursday night game and when that game would have to be flexed. Right. I mean, because right now they can flex things from, you know, one o'clock on Sunday to uh, the NBC Sunday night game. And I guess they can do this with Monday night games now starting in 2023. I mean, that happens basically two weeks before the game, you know, maybe it's a month, six weeks before the last, you know, couple of games that would be eligible to be flexed in the Thursday night window that you would have to do that so that at least that gives people more time to do the whole logistics juggling that they would have to do in order to move a game from Thursday to Sunday and from Sunday to a Thursday. There's just a lot that goes into that. Miles, let's finish with five sentences on Lamar Jackson, because I, I don't want to dwell on this story every single podcast, but the one thing that occurs to me that now we're in April is very simply that Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens are under no pressure until draft weekend Mm -hmm. to get anything done whatsoever. And so I think that you're not going to see anything this month until at least the draft and most likely afterwards. Because even if, say, the Patriots were to trade Mac Jones somewhere and then were to go after Lamar Jackson, I just don't see this happening until the precipice, the eve of the draft. And and look, it's a long shot anyway for anybody to do this because of all the guaranteed money involved. But I think we're entering a little bit of the long haul phase in the Lamar Jackson story. Yeah. I'd be interested to see what quarterbacks, if any, that Baltimore targets. And I know we talked about um, whether it's Carson Wentz or Matt Ryan last week, but Joe Flacco was also on the market. So maybe, I mean, frankly, if I'm Baltimore, I would maybe rather have Joe Flacco and reunite with him than I would with one of those other two guys. So I, I don't necessarily know, what they're going to do. I mean, it's not like they're going to be on the field and really practicing until phase two starts in the off season program anyway. And that's not until um, the end of the month. And then into may when you have OTAs, which obviously you would want your quarterback there for that too. So there are things that Baltimore is going to have to take care of. There are some things that Lamar Jackson is going to have to take care of, but we, I don't know that there's going to be any, big big development until probably draft night peter as you were saying or draft weekend and so we'll we'll see what happens once we get there but right now it just seems like there's just kind of this pause right i don't necessarily see anybody before the draft giving lamar jackson a multi-year offer sheet that would satisfy him you know in terms of guaranteed money or anything like that I, i i don't really see that happening because i feel like that would have happened before if it were going to happen so 
we'll see what the next iteration of this story becomes. But again, we're dealing with an unpredictable actor in Lamar Jackson, right? And we don't know what is going to come next with him. So that means we don't know when it's going to come next with him. That's kind of what makes this story fascinating and worth monitoring. But to me, it seems like that next checkpoint should be draft weekend. You know what I find interesting? I find interesting that Carson Wentz was at the NFL scouting combine trying to meet with teams, trying to get a job. And I find it very interesting that we have not heard word one from Matt Ryan. I don't think he wants to retire. Hmm. And I just keep it in the back of my head, Miles. I'm just keeping in mind Matt Ryan and some team, maybe Baltimore, that if if you wait, you wait, you wait, and you wait, and you wait until the dawn of training camp or a week before training camp, I wonder if there will be. Everybody thinks, oh, Matt Ryan's done. He's finished. He might be. But I keep waiting to see what will Matt Ryan do? And I know that's not the most pressing question. (laughs) However, I'm just totally fascinated that we've heard zero from Matt Ryan. Anyway, we're going to leave it there. Next week, we'll get more into the draft. We'll talk a little bit more about more information we're certainly going to hear. We'll be two weeks out from the draft next week. Uh, We are going to have on a draft poobah next week on the podcast. So we'll see. Uh, I'm negotiating, not negotiating, but I've asked a couple of draft poobahs to come on next week, and we'll have one of them to talk heavy draft next week. So we'll be back next week with another episode of the Peter King Podcast. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for dealing with us this week uh, as we are in a different locale and Uh, For those who watched this this podcast, I'm sorry you didn't hear from Brian Dable, but please go to the audio podcast and listen to an interesting conversation with Dable, I thought, uh, about uh, his history and his life in the NFL, which has had an awful lot of interesting twists and turns. Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next week for another episode of the Peter King Podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.